Please turn with me to the book of Revelation, chapter 1. Revelation, chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, things which must shortly take place, and he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. John to the seven churches which are in Asia, Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over all the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, And has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with clouds and every eye will see him. Even they who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come the Almighty. I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet, saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, and What you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band, his head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars, out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. When I saw him, I fell at my feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. Last week we covered what I would consider to be the preface of Revelation. Now we come to the introduction proper. 
And we read here that the sender of this letter was John. And that's it. And I don't think that's the way that one speaks to people that one does not know. It was, it's obvious that the audience, the recipients of this letter knew precisely who John the Apostle was. And the recipients are the seven churches which are in Asia. They're listed for us in verse 11. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Theratira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And it seems, therefore, that although the apostles had a very general authority over the church, they were also given by God certain churches of which they had more specific concern. And for John, it was the seven churches in Asia. Now, as we saw last week, it is true that this book is a revelation of the highest order. Yet it is also a pastoral letter, and we cannot lose sight of that. It is written by a pastor to his flock. And therefore, if this letter could not have been understood by the ordinary people of those seven ordinary churches, if they could not have derived spiritual food from it, then John is guilty of pastoral malpractice. He is giving them food that isn't food. He is giving them something they can't understand and they're not going to benefit from. Or is it the case that this pastoral letter can be understood by ordinary people in ordinary churches and that they can receive instruction and correction and encouragement from them? I think it must be the latter case. And that is the way that we approach this pastoral letter and epistle. Indeed, John begins with the same sort of greeting that virtually all the epistles have, grace and peace. John continues that this grace and peace come from him who is and who was and who is to come. Because that grace and that peace have the very firmest of foundations. There's nothing temporary, there's nothing provisional about this source of grace who was before all things were. This peace that passes understanding that lasts forevermore. A lot of good a peace would be that is dependent upon some sort of thing that is temporary. A peace that you get only because you have a certain job. A peace that you get only because you have a certain house. A peace that you get only because you have a certain substance. That peace is very temporary, isn't it? Because those things pass away. But the peace, the grace and the peace that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ is in the one who was and who is and who is to come. Nothing temporary, nothing provisional about it. God alone is the one who are these things. You see, Yahweh, you remember that? That four-letter word, Lord. And you see it in your Bible, capitalized L-O-R-D, Yahweh. The very definition, the very name of God. That means I am who I am. The one who is. He's defined by his being. Always that way and ever shall be. And therefore, he can give us these things that we most desire of grace and peace. But that's not the subject of our sermon today. Rather, our subject today is Christ, the firstborn prophet, priest, and king. As, as you recall, the subject of Revelation is Jesus Christ. And when John thinks about Christ, as when we think about Christ, his thoughts under the Holy Spirit certainly turn to these, the threefold category of Christ's work as prophet, as priest, and as king. Sometimes it, we want to think about the big picture, but sometimes that's too general. It's not specific enough. 
And we should always be, therefore, turning our attention to the next thing. Well, okay, Christ, but what did he do? Well, he was prophet, priest, and king. And then from those things, our mind were prompted to all the amazing and wonderful things that God has done for his people as prophet, priest, and king. And then soon enough, as he relates these things in in verse 5, from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his blood. Do Do you see? If you look carefully, that's prophet, priest, and king in those things. And then John immediately says how Christ gives these honors to his people in the next verse. And has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. I will get to why it might be that prophets not mentioned in that list. But Christ himself are these things, he's these things, and we also under him become these as well. Now, there is a parallel between what he is as prophet, priest, and king, and there's a parallel as what he has made us to be in prophets, priests, and kings. But these things are his by right. They are things, they are properly his by right. And we are, you see, only these things by derivation, only because we're in Christ. It's like the way we're children of God. We are children of God. It's a wonderful thing. But he is the only begotten Son of God. It is his by right and ours by adoption. And likewise, these things are all properly his. He has earned that title faithful witness precisely because he was faithful unto the death of the cross. He washed us in his blood because he laid down his life on the cross. And he reigns because he conquered on that cross. All that, of course, attested by him being the firstborn from the dead, of rising from the grave on the third day. So all these things are his properly. And they're given to us only secondarily. He is the firstborn prophet, priest, and king. So these three points then, prophet, priest, and king. Firstly, prophet. As we read in verse 5, and from Jesus Christ, a faithful witness, firstborn from the dead. And that, I think, speaks to his prophetic role. I mean, by that, him declaring the word of God, him speaking the truth in love, communicating knowledge of God to people. Now, we ask, in what ways was Christ a faithful witness? Well, he was a faithful witness to these things, faithful in the veracity of what he said. It was truth. He was the only one to perfectly uphold the ninth commandment. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Everything that he ever said and will say is faithful and true. There's no hint of error, no hint of falsehood. Because where does error and falsehood come from? And do those things apply to Jesus Christ? Well, error and falsehood, they come either from a lack of intellectual resources or from a sinful desire to twist what you know to be true. And neither of these things are applicable in the slightest to Jesus Christ. Christ has access to all knowledge. It says, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. He's got no lack of knowledge. He knows all things. And moreover, Christ has no reason to deceive. Do you know why we want to deceive? If God is the author of all reality, which he is, 
It's because either we don't like God or we don't like what He's given to us. We don't like His Word. Or, or something about reality that He's made, we don't like and we want it to be otherwise. That in a rebellion against God, we want to twist that and make that reality to be somewhere else. Well, that simply was not true of Christ. Jesus Christ loves God and is God. And he himself made and sustains all reality. What reason then would he ever have to represent these things, misrepresent these things? He is a faithful witness to them as the creator of all things. And it's impossible that he should lie, as Hebrews 6.18 says. So he's a faithful witness in, in the terms of veracity and truth. But he's also the faithful witness. And I think that's, this is probably the sense in which John has more in view here. He's also faithful in that he kept saying those truthful things even under the most extreme circumstances and testing. You see, truth always costs. It always costs. It doesn't cost in heaven, of course. But here we live in a world that lies under the sway of a liar and the father of it. The whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. And that wicked one is a liar and the father of it. In John 8, 44. And so we are like sort of Pro, like the, the way a pro-democracy activist would be in some sort of brutal dictatorship. When we speak the truth, there's always going to be some sort of cost. And the question is, how high is your price? What is it going to cost to get you to compromise and to speak or to shut up? Well, Christ remained faithful even when the cost could not have been greater when the stakes could not have been higher than what they were. He kept on saying the truth because he is the faithful witness. When Jesus was being examined by that Jewish council in their sort of kangaroo court, even though they were seeking to kill him, there might have been possibly some things he could have said to save his skin. But I'm sure that there are things that he should not have said to make it easier for them. There are some things that he didn't have to say, you see, that made it all too easy for them to convict him. In fact, you remember that they were having a little trouble coming up with false witnesses that could get their story together. And there are certainly some things that would be the last thing that he ever should have said in such a circumstance. That was precisely the thing that he said. Listen to the court transcript in Mark 14. Again, the high priest asked him, saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his clothes and said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. Now, that's not being relevant that's being a faithful witness. That's what a faithful witness does, no matter what the cost. He speaks the truth. You know, prices are always negotiable. I mentioned that truth costs. And if you begin by saying, I would be willing to lose my job, but not my life for speaking the truth, then the negotiation begins, and no one knows where that negotiation might end. 
Pretty soon the world and the flesh and the devil may have negotiated you down to selling out under the threat of being ridiculed. And in order to overcome that whole process, there can be no price. You must say from the very beginning that there is no price under which I will compromise. You must determine under the power and strength of God to stand and to be faithful witnesses to the faithful witness who laid down his life for you, who washed your sins in his blood. Now, we may never be called on to pay the ultimate price, but the principle is precisely the same. We must be, as Christ was, a faithful witness. By the way, the, the ultimate price is probably what's going to be required of a lot of John's readers in the seven churches. We know that this was a time of persecution. We don't know exactly if it was a worse time of persecution than others. Most times in Christian history have been persecution times. But that was going to be required of many, many who have read this letter over the years. And they're going to be asked to remain faithful in persecution, faithful witnesses. Now, notice that all these things are connected with the fact that Christ is the firstborn from the dead. You see, in order to be a faithful witness, Christ had to be willing to pay the price for saying the truth. He had to be willing to lay down his life. It could not, therefore, be too precious to him. Right? If your life is too precious for you, it's way up here, then you're not going to be willing to lay down your life. In fact, if it's too precious to you, then some of the things that make your, your life nice in this world, you're not going to be able to, to lay them down. But what it says in Revelation 12:11 is, they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. Because that's the explanation. You have to love Christ more than your life in this world. They did not love their lives to the death. And therefore, they were faithful witnesses. Well, that only happens if we're convinced that Christ really is the firstborn from the dead. And that there is life after this life. And that Christ is able to bring us into everlasting life. Well, that was prophet. Secondly, and in more brief terms, king. You read in verse 5. Firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. This is extremely important in the context of Revelation, you see, because this was a time of the Roman Empire. John had been sent to some volcanic prison island, Patmos, precisely by some Roman emperor or his underlings. And he and the ones he's writing to are going to be tempted to forget the fact that Jesus Christ really is the ruler over the kings of the earth because it didn't look like that at the time. It really didn't. It's something that we must believe to be true, though. And it is precisely in his title of firstborn from the dead that so establishes his everlasting kingship. Remember, the subject of the sermon is the firstborn prophet, priest, and king. As you see, he's, not only is he king by right, and he is always and has been, ever been, the king by right, but he is also the king by conquest, you see. And he conquered that one most scary of enemies that we know of, and that's death. Jesus Christ conquered death on the cross. 
And when those people who received that letter and did receive the letter, and as we read it today, when we are tempted to fear earthly kings and rulers and politicians and bosses more than Christ, we need to remember, who did they conquer? You have to look at those people who are asking you to compromise, and you say, who did you conquer? Maybe the people there could look at Nero and say, who did you conquer? Did you conquer death and Hades? Were you able to raise from the dead on the third day as Christ did? There was some, some myth that maybe Nero would do that, but he didn't. Christ did. He's the firstborn from the dead and the ruler over the kings of the earth. And it is precisely in this kind of context that Jesus says he has authority to send us out to be faithful witnesses. That's what it says in Matthew 28:18. But when does this happen? It happens after the resurrection from the dead. Jesus came, the risen Jesus came and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. All authority is mine by right, is mine by conquest. All authority has been given to me. Now therefore do what I ask you to do. And there is no situation under heaven that we can face that is outside the context of that all-encompassing, unlimited power and authority that Jesus has. If you meet with disease, it's under that authority. You meet with men, and they're under that authority. You meet with any problem whatsoever, and it's all under that authority that Jesus Christ, the firstborn king, has. He is the ruler over all the kings of the earth. So he's prophet, he's king, and thirdly, he is priest. We also read in verse 5, The firstborn from the dead to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Oh, I suppose that would take love, wouldn't it? It doesn't exactly sound like something you do for those whom you're just indifferent about. We can't forget that. If we are in Christ, if we put our faith in him, he's the one who's washed us in his blood. And that is not something that anyone's going to do for someone that they're merely indifferent about. And don't ever be tempted to imagine that you're just some indifferent number to Jesus Christ. It took a great and infinite amount of love to do that for you. And he washed us from our sins because we needed it. Because we were sinners. Because we are sinners and we need washing. We were filthy. And those sins were going to bring us to hell. But he washed us. In Zechariah 3, 1, you remember the story of Joshua the high priest. It's a great pictorial. You know, Revelation is all about pictures. And there's no picture on the page, but there's pictorial language, you see. There's these images that we have. And this picture of being clothed in filthy rags is so powerful. And he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the angel. He was clothed with filthy garments because he's a sinner. And he doesn't deserve to be in the presence of God. He deserves to be in hell. But what it says is the Lord says, take away the filthy garments. And he said, see, I have removed your iniquity from you and will clothe you with rich robes. 
It's not said where he was able to do that or how he was able to do that right there in Zechariah, but we know from Revelation it was from his own blood. That was the, the solvent. That was the soap that was necessary to clean these sins. How much do you think would it cost to buy the blood of Christ? How precious is that blood? If you wanted to go and and say, I'd like to buy a pint of the blood of the Son of God, please, what do you think that's going to set you back? Well, I don't think that we have enough money in the world to pay for it. I think it's that precious. But his blood was poured out like water used for washing, washing dirty clothes, because that is what it took. And that's the explanation that in Revelation 7.13 where it says, Then one of the elders answered saying, Who are these arrayed in white robes and where do they come from? I don't know anybody with white robes on this earth. All I've met ever have been sinners in filthy rags. Where did these come from? And I said to him, Sir, you know. So he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. That precious blood. The one who loved us and washed us in his own blood, these are they. He is our priest. He is the one who makes us clean. A great cost to himself. So Christ is prophet, priest, and king. And the application is that we are prophets, priests, and kings. We are kings, first of all. We have to understand that Christ himself was in in some sense king during his state of humiliation, right? He was king even though it didn't look that way. He didn't really exercise that power on this earth. And so it is with us. It's not in the past tense that he's made us uh, kings and priests. He already has done that. But our kingdom is not of this world. You see? Our kingdom, just like Christ, is not of this world. But soon enough it shall be. Christ will return and he will execute judgment and so will we. Christ's enemies will bow at his feet and strangely enough it says that so it will be for God's people. But Christ was king even during his earthly sojourn in his inner reality, in his dignity, in his destiny, though not in outward glory. You know, there is a nobility that goes along with being a king, even in this world. It's not a haughty sort of nobility. Quite the opposite. Rather, it's a generosity of spirit that comes from a position of strength. And that's what's necessary as we deal with the persecution that this revelation is all about. If they scorn, if they make fun of us and so forth, you persecute, you must keep in mind the reality of being a king and the, the, the kingdom to come. They may do these things now, but that will not always be the case. Maybe, perhaps, the person in front of you is going to join us. And remember, that's always a possibility. And when you look at them as they scorn, you think in your mind, you'll soon enough join us. Or else, you'll soon enough bow before this Lord Jesus whom I speak. And you can have a calmness in your spirit. How angry can you be with someone that you know you're going to be embracing in eternity? How angry could you be with someone whom you know? 
He's not going to be a bother to you in eternity. Hopefully not at all. So as kings and queens, act like them and don't be petty. I was thinking of an illustration of this, and I suppose the question is, I don't know, you think about earthly uh, rulers and, for instance, Prince William. You see him go into various events, and you see how magnanimous it is. And some of us would probably be tempted to say, now, how hard is it really for him to be so magnanimous? He knows he's going to be king. So who, who's going to bother him? Why should he be petty about anything? He can afford to be generous, can't he? Well, that's exactly our situation, actually. For those who know that they're going to be king, it should be easy for us to be magnanimous, generous, both spiritually and materially, because we know that we're going to be given all things. So we are to be kings. And second, we're to be prophets. Now, I notice that this is not included in verse 6, and you might wonder why he didn't have the complete list there. Well, maybe it's just because Revelation, on the whole, is precisely to get us to be faithful witnesses. That seems to be the great thrust of it as far as application. It is to get to be, the, that for God's people to be faithful witnesses. Well, that's what we ought to be. Well done, thou good and faithful witness. Not well done, thou successful witness. And that's a good thing because if that standard was applied to Jesus himself, he would have failed. Not well done, thou good and successful witness, but well done, thou good and faithful witness. That is what is asked of us. Well done, good and faithful servant. All we need to do then is speak the truth in love. So simple to be faithful. Problem is people come looking for affirmation in their sin. Could be in all sorts of ways. You know, sometimes people say, oh, they know you're a Christian, they come and they say, I'm doing this. That's not so wrong, is it? And all they want from us is some minor affirmation, but we have to say, well, since you ask, God gave ten commandments. Thou shalt not. Or they say, I'm a spiritual person. I'll get to go to heaven too, won't I? And you have to say with Acts 4.12, Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That's being a faithful witness. That's being true. Each and every day there are going to be temptations to compromise with the truth. With others and even with yourself. And every day, as it were, the telemarketer from hell is going to call with some sort of boiler room scam. You know, bring, bring. Oh, so, so I can avoid ridicule and being ostracized and losing money only if I act now and deny Jesus Christ? Or maybe if I just keep my mouth shut at the right moment, then I can have these benefits? You have to stop and think before you act on that. You have to stop and think about the one who washed you in his own precious blood. And then you have to think, well, no, in, in fact, probably the least I could do for someone like that is at least act like I know him. And then maybe, just maybe, we can think, you know, I've got a better deal than that. I've got a better deal for you. 
How about I ask the Lord to enable a weak sinner like me to pay whatever price it is that you come up with today, whatever it might be, and you pay the penalty throughout all eternity, meaning Satan as he's tempting us in this way, because hell will be hotter for him for having tried to get a child of God to fall. And then I, through Jesus Christ, who makes me to stand, all glory be to him, but I actually get the benefit for just this once being able to stand and being a faithful witness. Like the apostles before the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem, I think they understood that deal, didn't they? In Acts 5.40, when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And so they departed from the presence of the council, what? Sorry that they had spoken the truth? No. Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as a Christ. Wow. Well, to live like that, to be a faithful witness, you have to be convinced that Jesus Christ is the firstborn from the dead and that he is able to bring you into everlasting life. Well, thirdly and finally, we should also be priests. And I'll just briefly mention that though we do not follow Christ in his sacrificial atonement, certainly not, but we do follow him in this, our intercession for one another. Christ has made us to be priests, and we ought to be praying for one another. We ought to be praying for the world around us. We ought to be praying that sinners would come to faith in Christ. We ought to be praying that God would keep us clean in this world. And we ought to be interceding for all the various needs of, that these people have. We have to know what they are, by the way. But in these things, God makes us to be his priests on this earth. Christ was a fa- is the firstborn, is, was and is and is to come, the firstborn prophet, priest, and king. But truly, we are his younger brothers and sisters in these things. And so we should think and speak and act accordingly.